Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose lands we are producing this podcast and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Yambri peoples, past, present and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange. I'm Alex, your familiar stranger for today, and welcome to the first interview of Season 2 2020. We're brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia-Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. And this week, I want to give extra special thanks to Matt Barnes and Craig Greening from the ANU School of Music for help with the recording. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Svera Molland. Svera is a senior lecturer as well as head of department in anthropology at the ANU. Also, a disclaimer, he is on my PhD supervisory panel. Now, initially trained in social anthropology at the University of Oslo and Asian Studies in Australia, Svera has also worked for the United Nations Development Program in the Mekong region, working on human trafficking. Since receiving both his PhD and a postdoctorate from Macquarie University, Svera has lectured in anthropology at the ANU, and, as discussed in our interview, he also continues to consult for NGOs in the Mekong region. We talk about human trafficking, modern slavery, and various governmental and non-governmental responses to these phenomena. In particular, we look at the inherent contradictions in anti-trafficking work between the stationary nature of projects and the mobile nature of trafficking. A common theme is what these discourses actually do whether it's to depoliticise labour rights and border control, engage other non-governmental actors, or simply make people feel like they're involved. These are difficult topics, and while Svera is supportive overall of the work of the UN and many NGOs, he notes that often the outcomes of project interventions are counter to the good intentions of activists and bureaucrats. But before we dive into today's interview, did you know that we have a Facebook chats group? Join us on the Familiar Strange Chats on Facebook and provide some valuable insight into today's interview. Now, here it is, my interview with Svera. Svera, to start us off, would you like to tell us just a little bit about your research in general? My research uh, is exploring the relationship between migration, development and security in mainland Southeast Asia. A main focus for quite some time has been looking at countries such as Thailand and Laos and more recently Myanmar, trying to understand human trafficking and human trafficking interventions. What is interesting here, I think, is how it brings together, on the one hand, aid actors, humanitarian discourses and so forth, but it brings that into kind of a security realm. Some of these topics are quite confrontational in some ways. How did you get into this area of research to start with? You know, I think serendipity is something that is quite important in ethnographic practice. For me, I actually came into this topic not as an academic, but as an aid worker, basically. You know, after I finished my master degrees here in Australia and after conducting both anthropological studies in Australia and also first in Norway, where I'm from, I quite randomly ended up working for one of the first regional UN-initiated trafficking programs in the Mekong region. And at that point in time, so this would have been early 2000s, and human trafficking was kind of a new topic. It was starting to really become a big thing in the aid sector. Media was picking up on this quite a bit. 
So my entry point for this was not as an academic, it was working for this UN project. But while I was doing that, it kind of brought me back into anthropology, I guess. And partly it was because I basically wanted to go back to university. You know, I felt I hadn't quite finished what I've done there as a student. If you asked me this in the late 1990s or even in 2000, I would never have said human trafficking. It was just because I ended up working for this program. And there were a few sort of interesting things that came out of that experience. And one was that, look, although I am quite sympathetic towards uh, the work of the UN, and I'm still to this day very supportive of uh, the UN, if I'm going to kind of put my policy hat on, if you like, it, it was frustrating in different kinds of ways. And one of those things had to do with how little we knew, actually. You know, you gradually start to become kind of aware of there's a particular lens, there's a particular sort of perspective that you learn to adopt, I suppose, when you work for an aid agency. I don't know, I guess you can call it kind of a bureaucratic habitus. You know, you, you look at the world in a particular way. You know, it was clear to me that a lot of the information we had on what was going on was uh, very flimsy. Uh, it was very limited in different ways. The broader kind of political, social, cultural context of migration was kind of lost a little bit, I thought. What became apparent was that if you look at recruitment in this particular context, both in terms of commercial sex, but also labor migration as well, it became really obvious to me that all of this took place in rather different ways to what was kind of the more stereotypical image amongst aid workers and so forth. And that's what took me to the more kind of institutional ethnography, trying to understand aid agencies. Uh, it's kind of, you know, auto-ethnography in some ways, I suppose, you know, I'm a former aid worker. I still do consultancy work with, uh, with the aid programs from time to time. And I want to ask you a bit more because particularly within the anthropology of development, a mm. lot of people have made that transition from aid practitioner to then academic. And how did you find that? What were some of the challenges? What were, I don't know, some of the benefits? I mean, in terms of knowledge production in the broad sense, the kind of epistemology you're dealing with is very different to what you would have if you're an aid worker. You know, if you work on an anti-trafficking project, right, you are, of course, trying to somehow solve a problem, right? In this case, trafficking, whatever that might mean. And a little bit of that thinking was still with me in the early days of my research as a PhD candidate. And my, <laughs> my supervisor had to bang my head quite a bit to get me to, to broaden my horizons on this. Over time, I guess you, you learn to engage different realms of knowledge production and where you think about these these topics. To step it back, a couple of times now you've mentioned this idea of like a bureaucratic habitus. Would you like to describe that a little further? Explain what is habitus and then what do you see as being that bureaucratic habitus? Potentially now it's like it can be a two hour long <laughs> podcast about habitus, but as a shorthand way, I mean, we were dealing with, with basically this observation that a lot of social practice and you know the, the way we go about everyday lives as human beings is not necessarily or certainly not primarily based on some sort of highly reflexive conscious reflection or anything like that. We go about things in a habitual way. Perhaps one way of thinking about it is that it's about drawing attention to how you know we possess a range of different dispositions which doesn't 
in a mechanical way determine what we end up doing and thinking and saying and so forth, but it does structure it. So so that's habitus. And an interesting thing about bureaucracies is that bureaucracies, policy, on the one hand, we may think about this as a kind of an analytical craft. If you're going to design a program to combat trafficking, it requires some analytical labor. But at the same time, of course, you know, what's the nature of bureaucracy? I mean, a lot of what bureaucracy is about is to automate processes. You know, this is why we fill out forms and, uh, <laughs> and including at universities, right? But what that really means, though, is that an important function of bureaucracy is to remove thinking from the process, right? Mm-hmm. Automation is about not having to think. To me, this is a really, really interesting uh, dichotomy in terms of thinking about policy space generally, because on the one hand, it has this analytical quality to it in the sense of trying to diagnose a particular problem, whatever that might be, lack of education or too much trafficking or whatever what it might be. But then at the same time, you have the way institutions go about doing things. Often it ends up being kind of a scripted and prescriptive kind of practice. To me, what is fascinating then from an ethnographic point of view is how do you look at how people go about doing things and how often you can have individuals, you know, in one moment, they may be very reflexive about what they're doing. But next minute, you know, they're just in kind of a habitual way. They're just carrying on without necessarily putting so much thought into it because it's become kind of semi-automated. Just for the sake of our audience, would you have a couple of examples of things that you would describe as bureaucratic habitus? All right. So one big thing you get with Mm anti-trafficking organizations is how do you identify trafficked victims? Okay, so in a legal sense, a trafficker is using deception or coercion to move someone into or recruit someone into an exploitative labor-related situation. So again, we can see how this is clearly analytical, right? Mm -hmm. You have to make some kind of assessment about does this constitute trafficking or not? But a very common way that other programs end up doing this is through having trafficked victims identification guidelines, for example. Mm -hmm. So here we get the the automation going (laughs) in, right? So you have then, uh, you basically get this kind of tick-in-the-box kind of forms and things like that to use. I mean, ultimately, it camouflages basically the fact that even that requires you to make some analytical judgment about how you read this situation. So one thing that is fascinating to me about these kinds of things is that it does become a form of institutional-based programmatic economy of bad faith where um, it allows an aid worker to basically externalize the fact that they're making a very subjective call or decision about what is trafficking or not. Oh, you know, it wasn't me who said this, it was the form, right? That is one example where we see kind of a, a bureaucratic habit is at play. And what I would suggest is that what is anthropologically interesting about it is how it allows program activities to reproduce themselves. They can continue without having to actually deal with the fact that there is this sort of messy reality that they're dealing with. And th- this might be why, you know, we still have anti-trafficking interventions after more than 20 years and without really any notable success in uh, stopping it. So, When you say there's been no notable successes, we hear a lot about human trafficking, particularly in that Mekong sort of region. Would you be able to give us just a brief rundown of the context? So the Mekong region, we're dealing with, uh, with a part of the world where you've had you know, fairly vibrant economies. If you look at the change in countries like Vietnam and Thailand and also neighboring countries uh, further down south like Malaysia, you have a very, very large number of labor migrants and they're typically young people, people who come from rural areas. Thailand is very much the hub for this, but Mm -hmm. Thailand is relatively speaking much more wealthy compared to its neighbors. So you have enormous amounts of people migrating into sort of unskilled work. This is quite seasonal too, I should say. Mm -hmm. So in in the dry season, it's typically when people migrate because there's less agricultural work. You can go into Lao village and basically you're not going to have anyone between say 15 to 25 years of age. I'm exaggerating. Well, there there will be cases, but that's actually the case, you know, or very, very few. And these labor migrants, they 
end up in all kinds of different situations. So on the one hand, you know, we get that question of what do we mean by, say, labor exploitation or human trafficking? So then we have legal instruments around this, which is, of course, one very important point of reference for the aid sector to work from. But then you get that sort of translation work, if you like, in, uh, in terms of how do, say, aid programs actually operationalize these ideas in practice, right? It's really, really hard to put any number on, you know, how many people get trafficked from Laos. There are various aid reports that's trying to say this from time to time. <laughs> They're riddled with methodological problems and so forth, and, and they're kind of silly in some ways. But the, the context of this is this. Uh, you have then lots of people migrating. Many migrants will, if you talk to them, they will basically say, look, uh, this is way better than doing farm work. So for a lot of them, they will subjectively basically feel this is a good deal and, and they're able to remit quite a lot of money. And you can see this physically, like you can go to, a, again, if I have this example I gave of a Lao village, you know, you can walk into a village and you can really see which family that has sons or daughters in Thailand. But then, you know, within that reality, you then have a sliding scale where you get, for example, cases where migrants uh, get underpaid is really common, something that I've been dealing with in my recent research. And that in itself doesn't necessarily mean it's trafficking at all, right? That, that's just simply being underpaid. And I can make or may not be combined with various issues about work conditions that can be anything from standard occupational health safety issues. Depending on the industry they're in, a lot of work accidents. Uh, some of my recent research, I never interviewed so many migrants without limbs, basically. Hands getting caught in machinery in factories and that kind of thing. So you have those problems. Uh, but also, you know, other things like verbal abuse and that kind of thing. Sometimes, you know, forced saving schemes is a way to withhold money and that kind of thing from employers. And then you have really, really extreme forms of abuse. And these are the ones that uh, end up in a newspaper they can come across as stereotypical, and they are. That doesn't mean they're not uh, sort of empirically speaking true. It does happen that you have uh, everything from rape, you know, people being killed. Yeah. There's been some pretty horrific cases in the in the Thai fishing sector mm -hmm. in the recent years. Again, they are the head, uh, headline grabbers, but that, that's not to say that they don't take place. I, I certainly interviewed myself and talked to migrants who's, who's witnessed, uh, you know, people being thrown overboard and they're too sick to work and that kind of thing. So you have that. So you have really, really severe forms of abuse. How many? it's really, really hard to say. An added layer, and this is what takes us to the trafficking concept, that, that has more to do with the way people are recruited, uh, say in the Lao context, and, but also say in, in the Cambodian or Khmer and, and uh, Burmese context, you know, very frequently people migrate through friends, basically. But you do also have different forms of brokers and agents. And some of them now, as more and more, are actually licensed. So you have state-sanctioned uh, recruitment of workers. Uh, which in itself is, although in the policy idea is that that should actually reduce problems, uh, it doesn't. It, it tends to actually amplify them in some ways. You have a lot of unlicensed extra-legal brokers, and they charge a lot of money sometimes too. Sometimes through debt bondage arrangements, which again takes you back to the trafficking concept. And they even sometimes actively seek as a migration strategy to go through a debt bondage arrangement. Really? Not always, but sometimes that happens because basically during transport, it's the recruiter that's carrying the risk, uh, the financial risk, and not you as a migrant. So uh, there's some interesting work being done on this, um, uh, on, uh, on the Thai sex workers going to Japan, for example. But of course, then this can compromise people uh, in, in pretty significant ways as well. Other times you have migrants where they, they generally do not know these conditions, and it, it's only through migration that this is becoming apparent. And then they are stuck in pretty awful situations. So that's, I'm not going to give you a number on any of these things, but I think it's fair to say this, that there's been a tendency, I think, in the aid sector, keeping in mind that the aid sector is very diverse as well. Yep. And there's also actually infighting amongst aid agencies. But I think it's fair to say that part of the aid sector has prone to exaggerate in order to 
generate donor funding and so forth, they've been a bit quick to be alarmist about trafficking. That being said, at the same time, I think it's fair to say that governments in many cases have been kind of the opposite, where they've been a bit too quick to brush things under the carpet. So it sounds to me then, even though we're looking at it through the lens of trafficking, it could actually be just labour conditions more broadly that are the deeper issue. That's true. Okay, so in recent years, we have a growing body of academic literature on trafficking, and, and most of it is highly critical of anti-trafficking. I guess one of the key things that it's pointing to is that a lot of the analytical attention to anti-trafficking has been essentially how anti-trafficking contributes to depoliticizing labor, basically, labor conditions. I think it's quite easily recognizable for us. I mean, one interesting thing about trafficked victims, you know, is that if you look around in policy space globally, there's quite sort of hostile perception of migration. The general public, politicians are prone to label migrants as illegal and, uh, you know, and we kind of vilify them in all kinds of ways. There's one exception, and that's the trafficked victim. Even Donald Trump loves a trafficked victim, you know. <laughs> and anything from liberal democratic societies to social democratic uh, countries, even authoritarian and even totalitarian societies, everyone wants to combat trafficking, right? So the trafficked victim is kind of the perfect victim, right, that everyone loves. That should uh, lead us to be quite suspicious. You know, why is it that we can have this seeming consensus about wanting to do something about the particular problem? Anyway, so, you know, basically, I think one of the big lessons so far from anti-trafficking is that it helps to depoliticize border control and labor conditions. I mean, think about it this way, you know, say if you say, oh, well, we're deporting illegal migrants. Sounds a bit harsh, but say, oh, we're going to repatriate the trafficked victim. Oh, you know, it, it sounds kind of cute, you know, and yep. it, it sounds heartwarming. It sounds like we're doing something morally righteous. Uh, and in terms of policy responses, it brings together concerns with labor conditions with immigration policy. And of course, what happens in practice is that often the latter completely takes over from the former. So if you look around the world, if you look at countries where you have a lot of uh, labor migrants and so forth, typical outcome of anti-trafficking interventions ends up in practice to be some variation of border control measures, as opposed to actually providing migrants with meaningful, substantive protection. So you have mm -hmm. migrant hotlines, sometimes the trafficking hotlines or just migrant hotlines. And uh, there's been lots of attempts at this globally, and some groups will claim very big success with this. I would offer a slightly different perspective mm -hmm. <laughs> on this. So for example, I've been tracing these hotlines, like you know what happens when people call hotlines and that yep. kind of thing. It's used for different purposes than what it's intended for. So, for example, it's very rare in the, what I've been looking at that migrants themselves call a hotline, especially if you're an undocumented migrant. Yeah. Why would you call a hotline, right? Yep. You're exposing yourself. You're making yourself legible to the state in, in some shape or form. So you get other people calling. So, for example, you might get members of the general public and then the hotline operator, then they get police involved, they investigate, and then ultimately it's not the NGO running the hotline, but it's the police that will determine what this mm -hmm. is about. And they will like, well, this is not trafficking, this is illegal migration. So deportation becomes comes to result, right? Not just sex work. I've seen this in domestic work as well, where, where this is happening. You know, you have a well-meaning NGO doing a hotline, but ultimately it's the state authorities, not an NGO that will make a call, especially when you're dealing with serious cases. A hotline becomes a dub line in practice. It's a great example of, I guess, this argument in anti-politics machine, which is now quite sort of old book, but still quite relevant, I think, in some ways. And, and this point about counter-intentional effects of yeah. policy. The NGO, they, they want to help traffic victims. They're actually often quite against border control and deportation and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like it's happening behind our own backs. This is starting to relate to some of the recent work you've done, which comes from your article, Sedentary Optics. Yes. To start us off, would you like to tell us what, what are these sedentary optics? 
Okay, so sedentary optics is just kind of a term I use to try to engage what is a very now long and, and kind of old, perhaps not debate, but observation in anthropology, but also other disciplines, which pertains to a broad concern regarding, I guess, the state in, in a broad sense. And of course, a lot of this comes from scholars such as James Scott and, and Foucault. Okay, so the, the legacy of James Scott and, and, and Michel Foucault is premised on a very territorialized, sedentary way of thinking about how power works. These perspectives has come under quite a lot of critique, and, and people, I, I guess, have tried to move beyond them in different ways. So, so two things that has engaged me quite a bit for some time now has been, I guess, just the legacy of uh, the mobility's turn in the social sciences. So that will be people like John Uri, of course. The whole point about the mobility's turn, I guess, is to flip this upside down in some ways to kind of say, rather than static space, uh, mobility ought to be kind of a starting point for inquiry. So you have that, but then you have another thing that I draw more on from not anthropology, but from security studies in a broad sense mm -hmm. and, and surveillance studies dealing with questions around post-panopticism. One of those god awful terms. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, I, it's it's just sounds pretty glib, doesn't it? Post panopticism. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, I, I use it nonetheless, and and that means quite a few different things. But one one sort of strand of thinking from post panopticism is a bit similar to the mobility's turn in that it is basically saying that contemporary societies don't really primarily function according to the model of both Scott and, and Foucault. So much of the way a social organization in a broad sense is, is not necessarily based on this sort of territorialized, static way of governing people. Contemporary societies are very much characterized by motion and mobility and fluidity and, and that kind of thing. And labor migration and trafficking would be a key example of that. Theoretically, yeah. not territorialized yeah but yeah, your yes. counter argument is that actually yeah so so this is true so so what what the reason for me writing this paper was basically that by looking at then again this question of okay you're an anti-trafficking project all right you need to somehow make some claims and decisions around what is trafficking where is it where and when and so forth in order to carry out your work and again because we're dealing with not only is trafficking about migration and mobility, but it's also assumed to be shady, opaque, kind of underground, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which means that you would think for those two reasons, it will be highly difficult to make it legible. So what I'm pointing to in my paper is basically some examples from my research where in a very kind of odd way, uh, anti-trafficking uh, work, although dealing with the question of mobility, it's very static driven uh you know a lot of anti-trafficking organizations work in a village community which is a very highly sort of territorialized <laughs> thing right one would think that that would kind of be a mismatch if you like i mean think about it you have a trafficking project the setup shop in some village in laos where you have like as i said before like most young people will go to thailand on a seasonal basis right already there you have a pretty sort of big problem your object of study the migrants of which only some, not all, would be trafficked victims, maybe. They're not even in the village. So you have a displacement already there before you even began to do anything. I guess I'm asking some basic, basic questions, which comes from my own experience working in the sector. It's like, you know, how come that you can have an NGO setting up an anti-trafficking project in a Lao village, combating trafficking, where what they're combating is happening miles away? You know, it takes a good, what, maybe 10 hours drive from the village to Bangkok. <laughs> it's like, shouldn't they be in Bangkok? <laughs> you know, yeah. if that's where they're working, for example. This is the basic question I'm trying to understand is, is that, you know, how is that possible? And furthermore, how is it possible for an organization to do this over many years? And what I'm suggesting is that it is 
rather than that kind of mismatch between sort of static space, you know, being in a village to combat trafficking and the fluidity of the mobility, rather than that kind of becoming a, a problem for these programs, actually that is key to precisely explaining the reproduction. I mean, I mentioned bad faith earlier. This is a concept that comes from Jean-Paul Sartre, I guess, but it's basically a condition where we, to put it very simply, we self-deception, we lie okay. to ourselves. It kind of allows a quite creative form of knowledge production going on where aid agencies can sort of start to engage in thought processes where anything goes, basically. So, you know, you can imagine, all right, let's have a trafficking project where there are a lot of migrants. Okay, so the presence of having a lot of migrants from a village, on the one hand, that can justify the project. Over time, that becomes a problem. So it leads into a crisis because they kind of know that just people migrating is not necessarily trafficking. And that problem becomes accentuated once a lot of migrants return. This is a context we have seasonal migration. So this is around Lao and Thai New Year, like around Easter for us, you're going to get people coming back and they have big parties and it's a ton of fun, i got to say. Now, the problem becomes for the trafficking project, when you have this sort of cyclical migration where all these assumed trafficked victims can readily come back and then re-migrate afterwards, presumably that could become a crisis for the yep. project. But then that leads to other things. So when they then leave, then suddenly you have trafficking projects say, oh, that's evidence that they were being re-trafficked. So the lack of evidence suddenly becomes the evidence. Or it can be other things. It can be, well, okay, well, that's evidence that the traffickers have relocated. You know, they, they know we are here. So then they moved on to another village, which actually can be a justification for expanding your program, right? <laughs> Rather than closing it down. So this is what I'm trying to, to show in the, that, that paper is how if you focus ethnographically on the doing of aid, we can kind of understand how these illogical logics kind of operate in a way. You mentioned recently there's been a lot of interest in fishing in Thailand. Why do you think there's been that slight shift, well, major shift in attention? What was the case in, say, the early 2000s is that when you said human trafficking, it basically meant sex trafficking. A lot of the focus was on prostitution. I think globally that's still true in many other places. So say if you look at Europe, parts of the US and elsewhere, there's still a lot of focus on sex trafficking. Media too, to some extent, still do write about this quite a lot. Now, if you look at the Mekong region, I suggest that has changed. So I'm gonna just have a caveat here. Like, of course, there's still media reporting on prostitution and trafficking. That still takes place. Surely you will find NGOs doing this still. That being said, there has been a change in emphasis here. And basically, in, in the Mekong context, especially in Thailand, there's been, to put it very simply, you're moving from men, girls, and sex to boys, men, and fish. Thailand is interesting because it's one of the world's biggest exporters of seafood. So, so it is quite significant in that regard. It's also significant in the sense that it means that a big chunk of its economy is directly connected to global supply chains and consumers in Australia, in North America, in Europe and elsewhere. Now, the focus on sex trafficking, it will be an acceleration to say it's absent, but it doesn't have quite the same momentum as what it used to do. So anti-trafficking, I would suggest, at least in the Mekong context, sort of peaked in the late 2000s. More and more, you have aid agencies, so both UN agencies like, say, the ILO, International Labour Organization, but also NGOs and others, they have started to report on abuse in the, the fishing sector. And this has also been picked up by the media. So the question is why, you know, why the change from one to the other. 
on the one hand, we could think that, all right, maybe it's just in an empirical sense, it actually has changed from one to the other. Long story short, what I would say is that that's probably not it. All of this changes to both industries. There are some changes to sex work as well as the fishing sector. It's not like these empirical changes in labor abuse has just yep. sort of automatically changed the way it's being reported. Yep. So there's something to do with the discourse itself and, and, and how that's moving around. What I'm suggesting is that, okay, so it has something to do with a neoliberal ethos around consumers and how I guess the general public can, not necessarily whether they actually are consumers, but it's more about the way people can imagine them to be part of a consumerist ethics and so forth. And this is a big thing, it's like fair trade movement and all that kind of thing. So again, as I said before, in the, say the early 2000s, when sex trafficking was the main focus, obviously one of the key ways in which that linked to consumers was through a very kind of condemnation kind of discourse. Some of the policy models around this has been around criminalizing demand for sex, meaning criminalizing clients. But the point I'm making, though, is that if you think about it, that kind of discourse, the way it connects to sort of liberal notions of consumerism is through condemnation. The important point here is that it doesn't really open the space for participation in the sense that to have what, like slave-free sex? I don't know, like it's a condemnation, it's a moralizing kind of condemnation form of discourse. If you look at fishing, it's very, very different because here we have the focus on the fishing sector, of course, connects to, as I said before, global supply chains and consumers in an obvious way. And part of sort of corporate social responsibility and all that kind of stuff, it allows a form of participation in the sense that consumers can kind of, oh, you know, I'm not going to buy these prawns from Thailand because they have been tainted by modern slavery. The second thing about it is that I think it also connects to social media. Anti-trafficking came about before social media, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Modern slavery discourse came after social media. And I, I think that's not a coincidence. And I think it again, it has something to do with how social media is a form of participation as well. It's a form of action, you know, to share and like and post this, that and the other is a form of, it's not just sort of a spectator thing it allows a form of engagement of some kind and i think that dovetails quite well with this sort of idea sort of consumer choice and, and that kind of thing so then what do you see as the broader significance of that let's say why should non-anthropologists care about this movement what does it mean yes. for the wider world what it means for the wider world is that it's a gateway to understand and observe how this particular policy space we see movement in actors and which can have really important effects for not just migrants, but also about, I guess, how migration is dealt with in a policy sense more broadly. I'm simplifying a bit, but basically we're moving from the state to market. So if you look at anti-trafficking, or even to this day, essentially it is a state-driven thing. Uh, okay, so first of all, there are international law on human trafficking. It's, it's a state-induced thing, if you like. Although, of course, you have you know NGOs, which sometimes gets funding from private donations and that kind of thing. A lot of anti-trafficking is being funded by bilateral agencies. So uh, Australia, you know, is, is a great example. One of their main flagship projects, which is placing specific focus on prosecution, well, they say criminal justice response to trafficking. It basically means training police and prosecutors to bust traffickers. Yeah. And they've done this for more than well more than a decade. And I can't remember the latest phase was, I think it was at least $50 million Australian dollars. And, and mm -hmm. I think it's more coming. And, and there are others who spend a lot of money. So, so this is government aid funding. It's not a big surprise in the sense that it connects closely to borders. It makes anti-immigration very cute, basically. Yeah. That's what anti-trafficking does. Now, this consumerist stuff I was talking about, what is happening now for quite some time, 
we see private actors in this space. In an Australian context, one of Australia's richest individuals, a mining magnate, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, Australian listeners will be well aware of who he is, he bankrolls a lot of not trafficking, but modern slavery. Mm-hmm. So you have private actor, a mining millionaire, basically, investing a lot of money into, you know, literally investing yeah. into this space. The co-founder of eBay also mm-hmm. is another one, and, and there are several others. Out of Hong Kong, you have something called the Mekong Club, which is another group of some trafficking experts, but all, also business people, basically. They will not say explicitly, or I don't think they even will think themselves that they're against the word trafficking, but for various reasons, they prefer modern slavery as a, as kind of a vocabulary. And here we clearly see it's not the state, but it's the market, it's business that's going to solve trafficking, right? Or modern slavery, if you like. You can look at something like the change from commercial sex to to fish, you know, but actually that can analytically take you into space where you can actually see these very, really quite profound changes in this policy space in terms of how state actors and market actors operate in this space. And is that changing what issues are dealt with or how the issues are dealt with? Yes and no. Yes and no? Uh, Yes. So I should say there's an added element to all of this too. I think partly because anti-trafficking has been so dominant in the American region for such a long time, often through development aid, the modern slavery language hasn't kind of caught on quite as quick. In Australia and the UK especially, that's where it's most dominant at the moment. Mm. Anyway, so I was I was hanging out with an informant of mine. So this is a, a Thai NGO who's doing a lot of work on trafficking for a long, long time. And if I want to put my policy hat on, I, you know, they do good work. Not just trafficked victims, but just my destitute migrants so in all shapes and forms. They, they help them in different kinds of ways. So, so the trafficking uh, language has always been there for them. But now, last time I visited them, suddenly I saw one of them had a T-shirt with modern slavery. <laughs> you know? And they do exactly the same stuff. Yeah. They There's no difference whatsoever. You know, like 1990s, they did uh, child labor, I think. Yeah. And then the, the 2000s was trafficking, and now it's modern slavery. So on the one hand, a lot of the practice is just carrying on as usual at the same time that's too simple to say that like it's not true to say that nothing changes discourse does connect to practice it's an analytical question but for us as anthropologists it's an empirical question to try to show this and try to explain why so in the anti-trafficking space for a long time key focus has been on two things really one is law enforcement so it's about busting traffickers basically which to date has not worked well at all i think it's actually had a lot of collateral damage Mm -hmm. uh, made things worse for migrants in many ways but it means that you're resourcing police Mm -hmm. right and combined with victim support which takes you into social work and and counselors which is Mm -hmm. not necessarily a bad idea i mean there, there are sometimes absolutely genuine real need for clinical psychologists and that kind of thing. However, as we know as anthropologists, is that that tends to then pathologize support, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you, the real problem is that you don't have labor rights, yeah. then oh, we can offer you two hours of counseling, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's like, that's not to say that that's not good. That, mm-hmm. that might be absolutely valid and so forth, but it tends to close down rather than open up emancipatory politics around this. And slavery is quite different. Well, I should say, first of all, up to now, it's really vague what that actually is meant mm-hmm. to be. You know, it's all wine in your bottles in some ways, yep. right? But it does mean that, you know, rather than focusing a lot on police, there are other kind of actors that become elevated in that space. There will be much more about, for example, having, say, ministerial labor officials talking to business. And it, it also spa- it's interesting spatially because I think it does change the landscape quite a lot. So one of the first sort of concrete things we saw in this space, this was now some years ago, back in 2000, was actually California. 
So California legislated uh, basically making business, I can't remember the details, they had to earn over, over a certain amount of money and, and so forth. They were required to report on steps they take to clean up the supply chain, to, mm. to not have trafficking yeah. or slavery in the supply chain. And that's caught on, and that's a lot of that slavery stuff. Mm. It's subject to considerable discussion and critique. I think the devil is in the detail in the sense that, I mean, sometimes a lot of these reporting mechanisms are voluntary. Yeah. And back to this legibility problem, it's like, oh, what does that really actually mean, right? What, what is significant, though, is that that is a very different response nonetheless. It involves completely different actors, a lot of the actors actually being outside the state compared to, say, anti-trafficking. So it has real consequences. Then I've got to ask, as somebody who has had a foot in both camps, both the policy mm. and the academic world, would you have policy prescriptions or you don't really see that as your role? Oh, that's a tricky question. <laughs> you know, I remember when I finished my PhD, I had a conversation with my supervisor, you know, should I try to write some recommendations in my conclusion? And my supervisor said like, no, look, the audience for this is our three anthropologist examiners <laughs> <laughs> but he said something that i think is quite useful he said uh, yeah but not now it's back to audiences look I, I know there will be many anthropologists who and i have colleagues who you know the very thought of, of even doing any engagement with policy people is considered taboo you know and, mm. and it's kind of a dirty thing to do you know I, I don't have too much problems with it i think it's a productive thing to do but you need to be aware of what you're doing and under what circumstances you're doing it i have under certain circumstances declined consultancies because i felt it would compromise me i have at one point done a consultancy where i, I kind of regretted it afterwards mm. you know like i felt this particular program, they were kind of fishing for conclusions. Fortunately, this report this is one of those policy reports that no one reads. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> inconsequential. At the same time, I, I think it's useful for academics and anthropologists to do entertain that question of, all right, given the political terrain you're in, given what you know as an academic and your, your kind of intellectual labor you put into this, what could your contribution be? Because, I mean, you know, one thing that annoys me a lot with anthropologists and myself sometimes is, you know, isn't it so common that we end up saying things like oh well you know it's more complicated than that yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's such a dumb thing to say yeah <laughs> i mean it's true but it's it's uh, but that's the point is that it, it, it's such a kind of a fallback knee-jerk thing to say so i think it's interesting to kind of push yourself and to sort of say you have to jump into this sort of policy space now where you have to rather than simply trying to understand something you have to try to do something about this whatever that might be what could that be it's a very, very fragile space to be in, though, because, I mean, of course, there are so many examples of when you're moving to that sort of trying to do the right thing, you know, that, that can go wrong and be counterproductive and so forth. But uh, I don't think that's to say that there never should be a situation where you, you should give it a go. Well, then it, it's a bit cheeky, but can I turn that back on you? Sure. In this labor migration, anti-trafficking, modern slavery, mm. safe migration, whichever area you pick, what mm. would be your one key recommendation? I would have two. One would be to have far more intellectual investment in the policy space, I should say, in terms of paying attention to labor markets and, and why they are structured in different ways. So Thailand, you know, you know, it depends heavily on unskilled labor and, and you have a huge sort of informal economy. You know, so why is that? And, and how does that connect to how work conditions are kind of produced in particular ways. I mean, you know, the problem back to trafficking is that it's basically kind of sitting around waiting until something goes wrong and then it's going to act through arresting someone or something like that. It's a pretty yeah. hopeless thing to do. 
if you're going to sort of be in a policy space on this, you know, what you want to do is to think about what is it that produces these situations in the first place. So that's one thing. It's really difficult because what it will do, it takes you to the state really quickly mm-hmm. because the state is such profound force in terms of how it shapes labor economies. And that means that politically that's really difficult to do because a lot of the recommendations you're going to come up with probably won't be pleasing to the political ear. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think that still needs to be done. And the second thing is, and this is going to sound a bit glib and I think obvious for anthropologists, but that is to pay attention to the people you're trying to help and the context, the mm. political, cultural, social context of where you work. That is is just not being attended to too much at all. And for example, what it means in very sort of practical terms is, I've seen a lot of examples where a lot of organizations are attempting to help migrants, but they end up doing things that often is counterproductive and not in the interest of migrants, and, you know, not really properly asking them what they want. So a more sort of strong attention to migrants themselves and the, the context in which they move through would be important. I, I recall um, Thomas Olan Eriksson, he was saying something about this many years ago about development aid more broadly. You know, the recipe here is, in a kind of applied sense, is really easy. All right, so when we do, say, aid or policy intervention or what, whatever that might be, it's not going to work if local recipients, whether that is local farmers or migrants or policy people, whatever, if they don't see the value and meaning of whatever you want to try to do, it won't work. So if you want them to see the value of what you want to do, in order to get there, you have to understand them first. It's really, really simple point, and it's not being done, basically. So that will be my second answer to that question. I do know that's time. Mm. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. And best of luck in these strange COVID times. (laughs) Yes, likewise, yes. And that was it. It's Vera and me. Today's episode was produced by myself, Alex, with help from the other familiar strangers, Simon Theobald, Deanna Caddo, Claire Bichau, and Sean Lu. Our executive producer is Matthew Fulm. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and helps us make the show better. And if you'd like to support us, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the familiar strange not the strange familiars which is another fun podcast just not ours you can find the show notes including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world our most recent post was on plucking chickens and the roles we find ourselves embodying in the field find it at thefamiliarstrange.com if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to myself or the other hosts of this program email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro, and special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, Martin Pierce, and Mordero. Thanks for listening, see you in two weeks, and until next time, keep talking strange.